0: Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Welcome back, everybody. This is the second episode with José Setna. And, you know, now it's time to talk about the future of food, which is super exciting, right, José? You know, when talking about future of food, we already covered plant-based food. Lab-based meat protein sources, but we never really got to powder, which is apparently another trend. Is that right? Let's begin by that.
1: Okay. Hi again, everyone. So thanks, Maria. So basically, for me, the future of food is more sustainable, or it won't be. Then I would say, future of food is powder, and there are some facts that can support this, right? So. 40% 40% of the food in the world is in powder form, whether if it's a B2B, reconstituted as, a, as an ingredient, or B2C as an infant formula, supplement, personalized nutrition, instant mixes, coffee capsules, whatever, right? So the difference mainly is in dissolving it in an industry or at home. So you can transform into powder any kind of fresh food, whether if it's meat. Plants, grains, etc. And food powder, it's been with us from the beginning of the civilization, talking about the flower or any other food powder form. So it is safer, it is cheaper, it has more than two years self-life, sometimes it's restricted by the regulation, it has more traceability and more efficient quality control. So you can actually guarantee that what you are consuming, it's what it's expected to be. So it also provides access to industrialized other edible parts of uh, fresh produce than otherwise would be wasted. So, so there are many multiple angles that we can explore on, on the food powder that probably they are mostly unknown by by the audience. Talking about the the, the food landscape, so there are there are some uh, areas that never change in the food industry, right? So let's say there are hundred food companies in the world that produce around twenty percent of the food that accounts for around fifty percent of the total value of the food we consume, and the remaining eighty percent, it's produced by five hundred million SMEs, so, so a small medium enterprise, right? And a fraction of these small medium enterprise family companies, mostly and startups, they are transforming the food system. And for first time, they are becoming unicorns. They are becoming unicorns in only a few years of activity. So many of them are in the delivery or uh, they are marketplaces, but there are also companies producing milk kits. There are companies that are into food science or ingredients or different formulations or different sources of proteins and they are addressing the future of food. For example, Just, probably you know Just, or you know uh, Oatly, or Notco or Cava, but there are many others in China, like Genki Forest uh, in the beverages, or Weilong that is uh, producing noodles, and, and of course Impossible Foods, Beyond Burger, and so on and so forth. Some companies that I mentioned to you in the previous session, some of them are, are here, Right. So, uh, for example, in the delivery, in the the cloud kitchen space, we have Hitopi that became a a unicorn in the UAE. And then there are many startups playing some role in in the food system. So, regarding BlendHub, that is the company that I told you about. I mean, for me, I mean, with the impact as a driving force and the platform philosophy as a tactic, I decided to join this purpose-driven organization, and I, I will be the managing director for the Middle East. So basically, my role would be to expand this first food as a service manufacturing platform in the world. We changed to, to make food available in more just and safer way to more people in more places. So I think it's, um, it's important to, to get to know more about what we eat, to get to know about new sources of food. And uh, yeah, I, I make that choice.
0: It sounds so exciting, Jose. And you know what? Every time we talk about food tech, there's so much to explore. It just never ending, right? I have some questions regarding going back to the powder piece. Uh, actually, you were the first one to tell me about that. And I'm curious. For me, it's really clear how it's going to help when we talk about food waste. I can't imagine how much food we're wasting that is not really edible and that could be used somehow in the powder form, right? But what about when it comes to turning the fresh food into powder regarding the nutritious value? Can we actually keep it? How is this loss? And, and how do you think the public is going to, to, to receive that?
1: Well, uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, well, th- there are two companies there, right? So, education is very important. So, we have to be educated to be more aware about these sources of food and, and what does it mean in terms of nutritional values. So, basically, any powder needs to be dried first, right? So the, the fresh produce, the fresh meat, the fresh vegetables, whatever it's going to be converted into powder, it has to be dried. And then today with technology, typically it's a lyophilization or, or freeze-drying processes that preserves all the nutritional values of most of them, right? Especially vitamins and so on. So yeah, that's the case.
0: All about education. and And so still about education... So we know, as you as you mentioned, you know most of of the food system, the food chain, we're involving small families and farmers, and I think I read on on UN side that it's mostly women actually when it comes to the to the other point, right, in producing. On the same time, and I think we mentioned in the first episode that you can't talk about a sustainable future of food without having the technology involved. Do you think we are going to be able to, to be educating those, you know, small families and farmers into this process so, you know, they can still be up to date? Or do you think that's maybe that's not even necessary because they are just on the other side, they are working on generating the food and all the rest will happen in the end of, of the cycle?
1: Well, uh, thanks for your question, Maria, and I totally agree. It's, it's a way to empower women, especially in, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the most disadvantaged countries, right? Regarding technology adoption of these uh, small farmers and so on, I think this is happening already. So, for example, I advise a company that is in the agri-tech space called Plantai from Spain. So it's one of the main barriers that they were finding when marketing their services, their solutions. Is exactly that that resistance from the farmers that are less, I would say, proactive when adopting these new technologies, right? But the moment they see the solution working, and the moment they see some impact, for example, in the water that they use, right, for irrigation, they have some savings on it, or or they they reduce the use of uh, certain fertilizers, and and obviously impacting in their cost. And not necessarily related to the cost, but to the quality and to monitoring some of their consumptions, right? And reducing the carbon footprint, right? So there are so many metrics that now can be measured on real time through IoT sensors, for example. And this is happening. So the next revolution in the tech space will come from the adoption, especially on the open farming of these technologies because vertical farming and so on they are they are already in that mode right so they are already built based on technology but these other traditional farming methods they are the real challenge but it's happening that the transition is it's already happening
0: that's great that's great so let's have a slight change of topic here in one of your articles on linkedin you mentioned that Ukraine could feed the world. It alone has 42 million hectares of agricultural land. Let's talk about then the impact of the world, right? Considering Ukraine as a producer and Russia and as an importer. It was a very interesting conversation we had in our intercall. I'd love to cover that.
1: Yeah, well, it's very unfortunate the situation that is happening there, yeah. right? So, and, and a very sensitive topic, but talking about the numbers and the impact, right? It, it's true. I mean, it's 42 million hectares of agricultural land. That, that means 70% of the country's surface, it's dedicated to agriculture, right? So imagine in such a big country like Ukraine in the middle of Europe, and then strategically located, because the location is also very, very strategic to, to serve different geographies. So So, to put other numbers in perspective, I mean, more than 25% of the world's reserves of the called Chernosem, which is the, basically the fertile soil or the most fertile soil, the black soil in the world, 25% of the world reserves are there, right? So it's amazing, these numbers, because that is answering some of the hyperinflation that we are having in products like the sunflower oil. So, for example, it's the largest world producer of sunflower seed and sunflower oil. And then it's the top 10 producer of other agricultural products like corn, barley, rapeseed, wheat, and, and even soybean. So, it's amazing the impact of that event in the rest of the world in a context that was already very challenging because of the COVID. So, if you add russia to the picture i mean russia is also a very relevant producer of some agricultural commodities but it's especially one of the biggest exporters of the three major groups of fertilizers that are Mm -hmm. nitrogen phosphorus and potassium and also to give you some perspective on it many farmers around the world they are having problems to access to their fertilizers so their crops They are preparing their crops now. Their crops are threatened because of this, because they cannot go to the market and replace what they were importing from Russia. So it could create really a big crisis and this hyperinflation could be aggravated. So so then, apart from other considerations, I said a war settles nothing. And it never brings a lasting peace, but lasting death. And this is what we are seeing, right? And yeah. what we will see in the future. So so for me, you know, in terms of the food system, it's definitely been aggravated substantially because of these facts. So the situation was already very, very difficult. And the food supply chain was not even recovered, not even partially from the pandemic effects. So, I mean... Unfortunately, I see a, a forecast of more inflation in, in certain products.
0: It's really tough. And I, I, I don't think people realize that and, and they have this, this type of information. It's not something that you usually will see in the news, right?
1: Yeah, this is a very good point. And again, the, the solutions to these challenges will come from education, consumer awareness, but also technology and innovation. So, so we have to be able to prevent this reliance on certain sources, right? And I totally agree with you. So in the media, there is a responsibility of educating and disseminating knowledge besides some of these, you know, more, let's say, sensationalist news.
0: Exactly, exactly. So now let's have a complete changing topic and let's go to a a brighter note, right, José? So, you know, as we mentioned in the first episode, you've been living in Dubai for more than 12 years, right? Is that right? Yes. I'd love to know, you know, how's the experience of being an entrepreneur there? We already covered in China, a little bit of Japan, Singapore, you know, and UAE. There's so much happening out there.
1: Yeah, well, actually, this week I read that the United Arab Emirates was positioned the first in a rank of the best places where to become an entrepreneur or to launch a company, right? But uh, definitely, I mean, there is a lot of progress in that side. I think uh, the government and the society both very much committed to have the UAE and its multiculturality to create a very powerful hub of innovation. So I can say that in addition to the existing and continuously evolving ecosystem, which is young yet, but it's evolving. There are multiple accelerators, like Founder Institute for Silicon Valley, where I am also venture partner, and uh, local accelerators like IN5, that was pioneered and, and also involved in the steering committee, or, or Hub 71, which is in Abu Dhabi. So there are many other new initiatives being launched, like uh, different summits that happen during Expo, and they will have continuity. So I'm talking about the Food for Future Summit, which is backed by the Ministry of Climate Change and Environment, or the Future Food. And then the Food Tech Valley that was recently announced and it's going to be a cluster focusing in food tech and based in Dubai. But it's not only in the UAE because in Saudi, for example, I'm pretty sure that you are aware about Neom. This is a city that is going to be in the eastern province and it's going to have a food sector. It's also very much futuristic and willing to, to create a sustainable environment in all the aspects. It's, um, it's supposed
0: to be powered 100% by renewable energy,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. Among other things, right? But yeah. yeah, definitely. And then when we talk about food, we have to talk also about water because food is mostly about water. You know, it's accounting actually of 70% of the fresh water consumption globally. It's in the agriculture or, and, or in the food production right so on average i don't know if you were aware but uh, to produce one calorie we use approximately one liter of water right but really oh my god yeah this is true for some products but for some products is it's actually the ratio is terrible right against the water so we can say actually that water also fits the world in the uae alone we have some examples of food tech Like Iwego that I mentioned, that it's in the in the food waste distribution or food loss, right? Fighting the food loss. We have Kitopi that I also mentioned. There are many marketplaces, but there are also local agtech companies like Pure Harvest that is becoming very relevant in the region. It's expanding to Saudi now. Or we have Red Sea Farms that is solving some problems uh, related to the the water scarcity. For example, Red Farms develop different varieties that can be irrigated partially with seawater, right? With the salinity of the seawater, right? So imagine. So, and then we have Emirates BioFarm that uh, I mentioned also in the previous session. This is probably more traditional, but it's adopting, it's an example of adopting these disruptive technologies of IoT sensors and so on to improve their efficiencies while not compromising the sustainability aspect right but the opposite actually so there are also different institutions that are promoting and developing more efficient use of the resources like i am also very much connected with the uae food and beverage association manufacturing association which is very committed to enhance all these aspects and ICBA, which is the international center of biosaline it's also backed by the Ministry of Climate Change and General Environment that I mentioned. So we are definitely seeing an acceleration and increasing efforts and investment allocated to, to these spaces.
0: And probably you saw also a lot of that on, on all the events. And the, you had a recently Expo Dubai. You now have the Museum of the Future, which looks amazing. They're doing so, so much more. Is there, you've been there, you've not only been there, but you also took part of it, right? Any highlights you'd like to give us before we end this episode?
1: Yeah, for sure. So yeah, Expo was very busy time. So it's very sad to look backwards and see that it's over now. But I think it was a record one because it represented 192 countries for first time, which is all the countries in the world. Is the first one that happened in a Muslim country, the first one that happened in the Middle East, and it has received over 22 million people in a pandemic context, but also with all the health-related warranties, you know, with all the restrictions, travel restrictions, and so on. And they were able to move 22 million people. Can you imagine? So then, it was an amazing platform to present some of these, let's say, initiatives, right? So. It was focusing mobility in sustainability and opportunity and then with these three access i think it was an incredible as i said an incredible platform to disseminate uh, knowledge and to disseminate innovation so regarding the museum of the theater (laughs) i was i was visiting actually i was one of the the early visitors it's an amazing building it's really iconic you know, it's part of the Dubai strategy to have these iconic buildings and these iconic symbols. And then this in particular is in the Dubai Future District, which is uh, by Emirate Towers, close to the Dubai World Trade Center. It's in the, in the main road, which is Sheikh Zayed Road. So it's uh, surrounded by skyscrapers. It's about how the future is likely to be for humanity, right? It's also an initiative to disseminate technological advances and scientific knowledge and also to bring all these aspects closer to the people, right? So it's also fostering areas like the future of cities, the future of society, the life on Earth, but also the space exploration and colonization, let's call it by its name. So it's using some of the latest technology in augmented reality, in human machine interaction, big data analysis, artificial intelligence. So basically, when you enter there, I mean, besides the building itself, that is amazing. All the common areas inside the building are also really, I would say, inspiring and oriented to to the future. Right. So you can see some balloons, uh, elements flying around self-propelled and then you will see in different stages you will see or you will have different experiences so it's been designed for you to interact with the building and with all these technologies and one curiosity is that you have seen that there are arabic characters around the building right or in the building yeah so these characters are a quote from uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin, bin Rashid Al Maktoum, which is the, the ruler of Dubai and the vice prime minister of, of the UAE, of the United Arab Emirates. And it says that we won't live for hundreds of years, but we can create something that will last for hundreds of years. Um, oh, so yeah. Oh, nice, <laughs> nice. It's a, it, it gives you a, an idea of the, the vision, right? Behind
0: Yeah, it. yeah. Jose, it was so lovely to have you with us today. A lot of interesting content. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure, and you know, I'm pretty sure that in a couple of months you will have so much, so many news for us. You will be always welcome here.
1: Thank you very much, Maria. I probably I want to to have a final take on this. Uh, yes. And for me, I think it's it's relevant also to communicate some of these ideas, right? So. I think uh, when talking about the food and the water global challenges, it's not only about identifying a new standards or, or invest on these standards, right, once you identify. I think it's, it's a part of a journey. It's a transition with room for many technologies. So many different technologies has to coexist, Definitely. has to be combined. And these alternatives has to be combined actually to relieve the pressure on the traditional sources of food right so it's not plant-based alternative or culture meat or you know it's about the combination of all these efforts and then education to adopt some of them right partially at least
0: exactly a lot of exciting things to be explored still and i hope you know this podcast will inspire a lot of people a lot of entrepreneurs and even big companies to be venturing more right thank you so much jose
1: thank you Future
0: Hacker. Life.
1: Path. Future.